suffering and the persecution as the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church is um, quickly approaching. November 3rd is the day that is recognized as the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Like Pastor Han and Sang Chul, following Christ, sharing the gospel, living out your faith is very dangerous for millions upon millions of believers in many places around the world. Christians are excommunicated from families and communities. They are arrested and imprisoned. They are beaten and even in many instances, they're executed. As we think about that, we watch a movie like that, it can cause us to tear up. But because of the freedoms that we enjoy here in America as followers of Jesus, I don't really believe that any of us can relate on the level of what's depicted there in that video. Our freedoms make it difficult for us to understand and relate to their suffering, to, to understand what they are experiencing. We do not face that kind of violent persecution that so many others do. In many ways, I believe it's easy for us to be a Christ follower, though that's changing. It's easy for us to be a Christian here in the U.S. And I believe, personally, that the easiness can lull us to sleep. Here's what I, here's what I experience when I go on, on trips. I see Christians, we saw it in South Asia just a couple weeks ago, I see Christians who understand the gospel and the price that is required to faithfully live out the gospel in ways that I don't ever see it here in America. There's a seriousness about their faith that we do not have here. In fact, as, as I go overseas, I even feel embarrassed for my own walk with the Lord, my own commitment to, to ministry. Because I don't have the seriousness about my faith and the sharing of the gospel and living it out like they do. You, you may sometimes wonder, why should we as Christians in America get on an airplane or, or, or travel to some other place to share the gospel and to minister? You don't need to do it just to take the gospel to the other culture. You need to do it so that other brothers and sisters can speak into your life because they understand something about what it means to follow Jesus that you and I cannot understand in this easy believism that we have in the States. There's a seriousness that they get. You see, the greatest dangers for us here in America are not imprisonment and martyrdom. The greatest dangers that we face is this pleasure-seeking complacency that we are so inundated with as Jesus followers in America. It's so simple for us to be Christians here, so easy, so we can get into this mode of just going with the flow, getting caught up in seeking everything and anything there is except for Jesus. The result is when the slightest push, pushback comes against our faith, we don't know what to do. When you get that bad doctor's report, this idea that we for some reason believe that when we follow Jesus, things are going to be easy and wonderful and, 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 and impeccable, and so we get this bad report and we are just disillusioned. We don't know what to do with it because this is not the way it's supposed to be. When we get pushback from our friends, pushback from our culture, we don't know what to do. 
unfortunately, some give in to the pressure and they may compromise. They walk away or they hide in the shadows. Others, if they get any, uh, any ounce of persecution, any ounce of pushback to their faith, they become disillusioned and even walk away from their faith. This morning, as we come into this second letter to the church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, that is not true of them. This was not true of the believers there in the city of Smyrna. Much like the Ephesians, they lived in a strong and wealthy and imperial city of Rome like we looked at last week. Smyrna was a harbor city. It had a thriving export trade. It was 35 miles north of Ephesus. In fact, this city, I believe it's the only city of these seven letters, these seven churches that was sent. I believe it's the only city that still exists today. It's the Turkish city of Izmir. It was renowned for its beauty and its civic pride. The city was full of architecture, it was full of famous temples. It boasted to be the birthplace of the great poet Homer. There was an incredible culture there. Emperor worship was also pervasive in this city. It was the first city to construct a temple in honor of Dioroma. 23 BC, it was the first city to, uh, to be able to construct a temple to the worship of Emperor Tiberius. And so this was an incredibly religious and incredibly wealthy and incredibly secular and Gentile culture. But it also contained within it a large population of Jews. And Jews in the Roman culture had the privilege of being able to align with their religious beliefs and not face persecution. And so what the Christians here in Smyrna found themselves facing was opposition from these, these um, pagan, Roman, Greek culture type people who believed in many gods and the idea of emperor worship. They faced persecution from them at the same time facing opposition from Jews who looked at them and says, we don't want to be included in that bunch. And so they persecuted those that they would, re- they would condemn as apostate. So as we look at the church of Smyrna here, I want you to see this morning a church that is suffering. But I want you to see what Jesus says to this church. And this is it. It is this, suffer well. Look at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. More than likely, as we look back and and study the Uh, church here in Smyrna, more than likely the gospel was brought to this city during the ministry of Paul when he was there in Ephesus for those two years and three months on his third missionary journey. And so the gospel was heard, it was received by many there in the city of Smyrna, it changed their lives and as a result the church began to cause an uproar in this city. Many times that happened as we read through the book of Acts, we see that when the gospel began to be implanted in people's lives and it began to, began to multiply, it changed the face of culture, began to rattle the cages of the pagans. So the Gentiles accused these Christ followers of being atheists. 
You say, why would they accuse them of being atheists? They believed in a God. Well, they were forsaking the plurality of gods that the Romans worshipped. And so they considered them as atheists, refusing to worship Roman gods, refusing to worship the emperors. The Jews, as I mentioned, hated this apostate movement in their mind that many in Rome regarded as a sect of Judaism. And so they didn't want to be associated with this new brand of what the Gentiles believed was a sect of of Judaism. And so they pushed against it. They wanted to eradicate this movement. They joined the Gentiles in the persecution of these believers. Their hopes was to extinguish the church and its influence in Smyrna. However, what you see happening as persecution breaks out against these believers is that it does not extinguish it. Instead, it fuels and fans the fire. It only spread and solidified their faith. Throughout history, the seemingly paradoxical truth has been that the more the church has been persecuted, the greater has been its purity. That's what happens to the believers in Smyrna. Last Sunday, I shared a statement G. Campbell Morgan made years ago, and I want to share it again with you. It's on the screen. It is a very remarkable thing that the church of Christ persecuted has been the church of Christ pure. The church of Christ patronized has always been the church of Christ impure. I mentioned earlier, it's easy to be a follower of Jesus in America. So which category would we fit in today based upon G. Campbell Morgan? We would be in America the church patronized, which has led to our impurity. But what we see in Smyrna and so many other places around the world, when they face severe persecution, is that it leads them to this greater depth of purity and love for the Lord. So if we were to compare last week's letter, the letter to the church of Ephesus, to this letter, the letter to the church of Smyrna, We discover that there is a strong contrast here between a church who had become satisfied with their religious activity. Remember the Ephesians, they were so ingrained in good doctrine, good orthodoxy, which is a good thing, that they neglected the weightier and the more important thing, and that is the love of God and the love of others. And so they were... They had become complacent in their spiritual vitality, holding on to their spiritual activity. What we have with the Smyrnians is this concept or this love of the Lord, this pursuit of vi- spiritual vitality, even in the face of severe suffering. So I believe it's significant that this is one of only two churches in these seven letters that is not, uh, where there's not a weakness mentioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Smyrna and Philadelphia, Jesus says nothing about the churches in regards to weakness or sin. Could it be that their suffering had solidified their purity? doesn't mean they're sinless. Let's not get that concept. But this church was willing to give their lives for the Lord. Smyrna and Philadelphia churches were the least significant of the seven churches in terms of numbers, in terms of influence. Both face strong persecution. We'll get it to the church of Philadelphia in a few weeks. But their suffering strengthened their faith and it resulted in a greater sanctification. And so what we see in these two churches is that it's more important to be faithful than to be powerful. I want as our church, I want Red Lane Baptist Church, this is one of my prayers all the time, Lord, Give us influence in our community. Lord, give us a voice in our community. Allow us, open doors so that we can influence our culture, influence people in our 
community here. But it's not for this, just for the sake of influence. It's not for the sake of power. It's for the sake of the gospel. And so we don't ever as a church want to strive for having the, the ears of people in power. We want to strive to have the ears of people so that we can influence them with the gospel. How do we best do that? By being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And so this morning, I want this letter that Jesus gives to this church to speak to us about what it means to suffer well. Because that's the message to Smyrna, suffer well. And so how do we do that for ourselves here in 21st century America? Three things that I want to point out in how we can and how we should suffer well. First of all, keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on the prize. Look at verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. He's reminding them spiritually of where they're at. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Here I believe that the message for us is this. Keep your eye on the prize. See, the Lord knew the situation that these believers were facing in Smyrna. He again uses the same, the same verb that we saw last week to the Ephesians, where it says, I know your works. Here it says, I know your tribulation. I know you're suffering. I know that others are slandering you. It's the Greek word oida. It speaks of complete and full knowledge. He's, John here and Jesus here is using this term as opposed to the term gnosko, which is this idea of progressive acquisition of knowledge. We need to understand this morning that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, Jesus knows everything. He knows the beginning, he knows the end, and everything in the middle. And so Jesus tells these Smyrnians, I know your tribulation. And if I know it, keep your eye on the prize. He uses this same verb with each of the seven churches that we shall see. It's an indication that he fully knows and fully understands the condition of every church as well as the challenges he faces. And so for the church of Laodicea that we'll get to last, when he says, I know that you are lukewarm, I know that your spiritual condition is not what it should be, he, we, the church needs to wake up and say, God understands my lukewarmness. God understands my complacency. God understands my apathy. Therefore, I must repent. He knows. Smyrnians were experiencing tribulation, and God knew it. The term literally here refers to pressure. The, the tribulation was difficult. The, the pressure was intense. The heat was hot. And so it was really impacting these believers. In fact, it was so difficult. The pressure was so strong that the tribulation was facing or causing a direct correlation to their financial lack. He says they were impoverished. The term literally speaks of abject poverty. The idea is of possessing absolutely nothing. It makes sense that in an, in an antagonistic environment such as this, where everyone is against them, that it would lead to their financial ruin. These believers were destitute. These believers had, didn't have two nickels to rub together. Materially, they were impoverished. But look what Jesus says about them. He says, you're in poverty, you have absolutely nothing, you have no food to eat, you have no clothes to wear, you have no shelter over your heads. In the, in the economy of humanity, you are wrecked, but in my economy, you're rich. Spiritually, you have everything you could ever ask for. You are spiritually wealthy. You see, what these believers were doing and what they understood is something we need to do and we need to understand. And that is regardless of our situations, we pursue Jesus and we pursue people in the name of Jesus regardless of what it does to us. Because like Jesus says, we're laying up treasures in heaven, 
not here to lay treasures on earth. They were rich. Another aspect of their tribulation involved slander from the Jews. It's interesting that Jesus points out here that these people refer to themselves as Jews. They they, they speak of themselves as being the people of God. But what does Jesus say about them? He says they think they're the Jews of God. They, They think they're the people of God. But they're really the synagogue of Satan. They're the community of the enemy. Being a part of the family of God is not physical. It's not a racial issue. Paul makes, uh, uh, makes this an important point in Romans chapter 2. Paul there points out that it's not one who has the blood of Abraham running through their veins. It's the one who has the blood of Jesus covering their sins. That's what it means to be a part of the people of God and the family of God. To be a part of God's family. We have to, by faith, acknowledge Jesus Christ as God the Son and and, and confess our sins, come in repentance to Him and receive Him as Lord and Savior. The Jews there in Smyrna refused to do so. Therefore, in reality, they were not the people of God. They were the synagogue of Satan working against God and His people. And so the tribulation the Smyrnian believers faced, it was intense, it was harsh, and it was devastating. Nonetheless, the Lord's message was to them. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes focused on me. Keep your eyes focused on the reward that awaits you. So today, we too must keep our eyes on the prize. I like what Paul said in Philippians 3.14. He's pressing forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's pressing toward the prize, the goal that God has for him. See, God knows your situation today. He knows what struggles you're facing. He knows what difficulties you have. So what do you do? You need to remember why you suffer and what it is doing to grow you in your faith. You are rich, he says. It's purifying you in your walk with the Lord. We suffer well by keeping our eyes on the prize. Secondly, we suffer well when we do not fear what comes against us. Do not fear what comes against you, he says to this church. Look at verse 10, the first part, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have a tribulation. Wow, what a message. Thanks for that encouragement. Jesus here instructs the church to not be afraid of what they are about to suffer. I mean, it's an amazing prophetic word. This is not a new revelation for the people of God in the New Testament days. Jesus had many times, the apostles had many times instructed and encouraged the church and reminded the church that that they were going to suffer, that there were tribulations that were coming against them. And so over and over and over again, the Lord and and his, his apostles admonished the church, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not shrink back. Keep pressing on. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the prize. Continue to press forward with the gospel. Do not fear, and yet still the church here needed to be admonished, lest the threat of persecution, lest the threat of martyrdom would cause them to shrink back in fear. Again, I think one of the benefits of going overseas, obviously, is to propagate the gospel, but one of the benefits for the people who are there on the front lines for us to come over is so that we can encourage them, hey, we're praying for you back home. 
thousands if not millions of Christians who are praying for you, who are asking God to just give you everything you need. So we're there to encourage those who are on the front lines to continue to not fear, to not shrink back like the men who are depicted in this video that we saw, which is a true story, that they would continue the work of the gospel even in the face of execution. And so Jesus here specifically informed this church that the devil would soon orchestrate events in such a way that some of them would be in prison for a short time. Think about what is on the page in front of you. Jesus tells this church that there's going to be a period of 10 days or so in which the devil himself is going to orchestrate events in such a way that some of you will be imprisoned. What if you got that message today? What if you woke up this morning and you opened up your Facebook account and on the Red Lane page, which I know all of you check all the time and keep up with what's going on here, right? Yes, thank you for three of you. But you woke up this morning, you checked that, and you saw that we had a message from Jesus that says this week the devil's going to unleash hell on your church. Some of you will be taken in prison for a period of time. What would that do for your time alone with the Lord this morning as you drink coffee? What would that do for your commute to church this morning? How would you respond if we got a message like that from the Lord? Would you show up next Sunday? I'm going to pick on this a little bit because it's raining and our crowd's a little low, but I want you to know my heart. It's, I'm not being mean, but the typical Christian in America, rain keeps them from church. Two coughs out of your child. We can't go to church this morning. No, no, no. Can't go to church. I, I heard a pastor say a few weeks ago that uh, young families, they, they will do anything and everything to keep their kids in travel ball and, and, and competition dance. They will live like Navy SEALs on Saturday, Friday and Saturday through all of that. And I would say that is a living hell for, for, for families, for me. But when Sunday morning comes and Junior has a sniffle, you got to lay out of church. Pet peeve, I'm just going to pick on that a little bit, so I'm going to let it go. But really, as Christians in America, it rains on Sunday. You're like, I can't go to church. I got a garage, and my car's in the garage. I'm not even going to get wet until I get to the church. And then there's a person that probably will meet me if I want at the door and walk me to the door with an umbrella. But bless God, I can't get wet on Sunday morning. That's the way we are in America. And I'm making sort of light of that, but that's the mentality of so many Christians. Here's a church that gets a message from the Lord Jesus and says, I don't want you to fear, but the devil's coming after you. And some of you are going to be put in prison for a period of time, but I don't want you to fear. If we got that message today in America, we wouldn't show up next Sunday. If we got that message, we would not actively share the gospel with others. And the reality is most of us are not anyway. 
You see, persecution leads us to a place of belief or unbelief. I'm either going to be committed to this thing or I'm not. But because it's so easy for us today, we just want to straddle the line. So let's just wait until we get to the church of Laodicea because I believe in large part that is where we are at as Americans. Lukewarm, straddle the fence, complacent, apathetic. I just wanna, I wanna keep both feet in both types of world. That wasn't true of the Smyrna church. They were committed to Jesus regardless of circumstances. And so would we continue to share the gospel with others? I would say no. Would we go into hiding? Absolutely. Would we cease any involvement with the church? I believe most would if we got the message that the church at Smyrna got. Our response to such a threat says a lot about who and what we fear. Do I fear God? Do I have a holy reverence of God that would lead me, that would compel me to do absolutely in everything he tells me to do? Or am I so fearful of what others can do that I will neglect the God who can kill me, not just physically, but he can damn me to hell for all of eternity? Which one? Will I fear? In America, this is where we're at. We're on this side. Pastor's involved in that more than he should be as well. And so how can Jesus tell the Smyrnians not to fear? I just wrestled with this question this week. How can Jesus make this statement, do not fear what you're about to suffer? The, the concept of suffering causes us to fear, but Jesus says don't fear. How, how can he say that? Jesus can say this because he's in control. I want you to remember that. Jesus can say, do not fear, because he is in control. He knows the dangers that is coming against them. It doesn't mean that the danger is not going to be swift and severe. If the devil himself is behind it, you can rest assured this was a swift and dangerous and difficult tribulation. But Jesus says, do not fear. Why? Because like what he did to Job in Job 1 and Job 2, when the devil himself came prancing before the Lord, he says, have you considered my servant Job? Go and do whatever you want to do, but just don't touch him. And then the second chapter he says, don't kill him. You see, the devil and his minions, this world cannot do anything to the believer without the Lord Jesus Christ first signing off on it, or like I said Wednesday night, you stepping outside the boundaries that Jesus has confined for you and opening yourself up for attack. That's the only two ways that the enemy can ever touch you. Is if Jesus says, go ahead and do it. Or if you take yourself and put yourself in a dangerous situation. And so for us today, the message is this. Do not fear what comes against you. Remember the Lord knows the danger coming against you and he has it on a leash. And so we suffer well when we do not fear what comes against us. When you get that bad doctor's report, and, and it looks down here, Kara went through cancer last year, and though it was, I guess, a relatively mild cancer, just the idea of cancer is scary. Some of you are dealing with that right now. Some of you have just come out of that. Some of us, all of us as a church, have lost friends and loved ones to cancer in the last couple of years. Jesus says, do not fear. He's got it on a leash. Number three, we suffer well by being, by being willing to lay your life down. Be willing to lay 
your life down. Going on in the second part of chapter, uh, verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We see here that the Lord has tribulation, as I just said, on a leash. But this does not mean that suffering is not severe. It doesn't mean that suffering is not even deadly. What does Jesus say? Do not fear, but be faithful unto death. There's the the, the possibility here that there's going to be some who die in this deadly, severe tribulation. So for us, there are times when suffering for the cause of Christ strips you of everything in life. It even strips you of life itself. But Jesus' instruction is be faithful unto death. See, the one who does so will receive the crown of life, he says. We need to suffer because it honors the Lord. We need to suffer because we know he's good. But we also suffer knowing that as we continue to walk in faithfulness, there's a reward for what we do. There's a reward. He says you will obtain, you will be given the crown of life. Really the idea is life itself. You're going to be crowned with life itself. Here's a church that's facing the threat of death, the threat of execution. And Jesus says, don't fear. Be faithful because even if you die, you're not really dead. I am the one who is crucified. Look, what he, going back to verse 8, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. Jesus saying, I know it's difficult for you. I understand. I've been there. I'm acquainted with your grief. I'm acquainted with your sufferings. I, I know full well what it means to be persecuted and falsely accused. I know what it means to be a martyr. But don't fear, because I was once dead and I'm alive. You may die for your faith. You may die for my name, but you shall live. You will have the crown of life. What is this crown of life? Well, there's two types of crowns we see in the, in the scriptures. One is this royal diadem, and, and so that speaks of royalty. That's not what's mentioned here. This is the word stephanos. We, if you're named Stephen or Steve today, that word, your name comes from this. It's the wreath. It's the garland that was given to those in the games who would win the event. And so what he's saying is that you, as you continue to walk faithfully before me, as you continue to keep your eyes upon me, that you literally earn this reward of life, this special blessing. God's going to gift it to you. So the one who perseveres cannot be hurt by the second death, he says, this judgment that comes. When you think about what he's saying here, this is a counterculture concept to Americans. We're inundated with the idea that pleasure and self-happiness is what is important. It's what should be pursued. And so when things, don't, uh, uh, when things aren't congruent to our perspective of how things ought to be, we dismiss Christianity, we dismiss the Word of God because we believe, because culture tells us that pleasure is all that there is, that we need to be happy. But there are a lot of people over the all lot of centuries as Christians who are not happy. God doesn't call us to be happy people. I mean, I'm going to share with you a story that I've shared before in just a moment. When Bishop Polycarp from Smyrna was, was martyred for his faith, that was not a happy moment for him as he's burned alive, but it was a joyous moment because he could look Jesus in the face and know that he's being faithful even unto death. 
See, as we study the scriptures, it becomes apparent that Jesus calls us as his followers not to this endless, exhausting pursuit of pleasure, nor to the evasiveness of pain, but he calls us to a sacrificial love. He calls us to sacrifice. He calls us to give our lives to something that matters, and that is he himself and his kingdom, the work of the gospel. And so this contrast couldn't be clearer for us. I like what, how Vince Vitale in his book, Jesus Among Secular Gods, puts it. He says, in a culture that says, be yourself, look after yourself, express yourself, trust yourself, and treat yourself, Jesus said, deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me, knowing that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so as Christians, we need to be, we must be willing to lay our lives down for the cause of Christ. Maybe it's, um, I was thinking about this this morning and I was brushing my teeth or something. I have great thinking times when I'm in the restroom. It's like fixing, I don't really fix my hair much. So it's not a long time of, of thinking, but it's brief. But I don't know what it is, but I, my mind opens and I have clarity when I'm brushing my teeth and stuff like that. It's weird. But I was thinking this morning, and I'm almost losing my train of thought of what actually what I was going to say. So, um, and the more I think about it, I've lost my train of thought. It was great, though. It was profound. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm going to go to the restroom. <clears throat> I can't think of it, so I'm just going to go on. Um, today, as a follower of Jesus, are you willing to lay your life down? Are you willing to lay your life down for Christ? Are you willing to lay it down in service? I know what it was that I was going to say. I knew it would come back. Are you willing to lay your life down in service to others? And that's what triggered the thought. Here's a thought that goes through my head every single time I'm preparing to get on a plane to go overseas. Which one or two, three times a year. This could be the last time. I may not come back. Maybe that's a, um, a, a um, negative and morbid thought to have. But for me, it's a reality. I, I had those thoughts. Literally, I'm sitting in the airport before we went left to go to South Asia. I'm, I'm at Dulles Airport, and uh, I've been texting, and maybe even on the phone with Kara. I'm not sure. But for, and I, had, I don't talk to my mom like every single day or even every single week. But I thought, you know, I probably need to call my mom and just talk with her because <laughs> uh, I might not come back. It's just a thought I have. You just never know. Not that we are going to a super dangerous place, but you don't. No, I, I remember one time I'm in, in Uganda and I'm in a refugee settlement where we're doing a medical clinic for Somalians, Somalian refugees, and I'm standing literally surrounded in a circle by Somalians who are by and large Muslims, and I'm preaching the gospel, sharing with them as they're standing all the way around me. And the whole time I'm preaching, not with a sense of fear, I want you to know this, but with a clear understanding that as I'm sharing the gospel facing this way, a knife may pierce my back that way. Because they didn't like what we were saying by and large. We're there to love them. We're there to minister to them. And so we just need to be willing. So this morning I was thinking about that, that when we go, when I go overseas, I just always have this thought that this could be the time that I don't come back. And it could be that I go down in a plane. I don't know. But, uh, but I'm willing to go. And so why doesn't that always transfer over into my every single day life? That was the thought this morning. Why doesn't that same 
purposeness? Why doesn't that same tenacity, why doesn't that same commitment play itself out every single moment of my life here in this easy, God-blessed America? Are we willing to lay down our lives in service of the Lord and in service of others? Do we lay it down for the gospel? No matter the cost, are we laying it, are we willing to lay it down for Jesus and others? The Smyrnian believers heard and heeded Jesus' admonishment. I, I firmly believe that because, as I mentioned, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, the church really began to, to flourish. It was very um, ordered, orderly. 156 A.D., the persecution, however, never ceased. And so in 156 A.D., Polycarp, this 86-year-old man, as I shared with you back in August as an opening illustration, he was no atheist by our standards, but as these here in uh, this letter, as well as he himself, they were, he was considered as an atheist by those Roman authorities. He had served Christ since childhood, but to the Romans... He had refused to worship the emperor as a god, along with the other gods of Rome, and so he was an atheist. Polycarp knew denial would mean a painful death, denial of the, uh, denial of the emperor worship, denial of worshiping Roman gods. He knew that that would mean his painful death, either being thrown into the arena and killed by a wild animal or burned alive at the stake. Three times he was questioned. Three times invited to renounce his atheism. I I would encourage you to get a copy of this full story of of what happens in this account. It's amazing. But I'm giving the Cliff Notes version. Three times he's questioned, three times invited to announce his atheism, but renunciation of Jesus he refused to do. Swear in our release. Curse Christ, urged the Roman official. To which Polycarp replied, 86 years have I served the Lord, and he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp was not spared. A fire was built. Soldiers grabbed him. They were going to nail him to the stake. But Polycarp, he stopped them. He said, there's no need for this. There's no need. I will stand here quietly. I will stand here still. Just leave me as I am. For the one who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre, unmoved, without the security you desire from nails, he said. He began to pray aloud. The fire was lit and his flesh was consumed. If you read the account of those who were there and saw it, they actually say that his flesh didn't necessarily like melt away. It began to glow like bread in an oven. They even said that the scent, the aroma that came off of it was sweet. Not the smell of burning flesh. It was a sacrifice unto the Lord. His words echo down all the way through the centuries. They come to us, 86 years, I've served the Lord. He's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You see, Polycarp suffered well to the very end. He kept his eyes on the prize. He did not fear and he was willing to lay his life down. For us, as we read this letter, this letter especially is timely for those who are going through hard times. I believe there are two levels at which we can contextualize the Word of God. It's at the surface level of the text. Here it would apply to persecution as we look at persecution in the world, persecution in our own lives. Also we look at the theological underpinning here, how it could apply to trials since persecution is one of those trials. 
This letter to Smyrna would be valid for both of those in our own lives. And so as we read it, we're not facing the kinds of suffering that our brothers and sisters are facing in the hard places around the world. And so what can our takeaways be? Because more than likely in your life, you're not going to be faced with a decision, renounce Jesus or we burn you alive. More than likely. So how can this letter apply to us? Let me give you four things that are on the screen. We can identify with the many Christians who are suffering around the world. As we read this, and that's why I wanted to share that video with us, with you this morning as we got started. Because we need to be reminded that our brand of Christianity is not the brand that most of the world sees. For them, I shared with you last week that our, one of our translators in South Asia just a couple weeks ago when I found out that when he came to know Christ and his wife came to know Christ and they really be, began to share their faith with others, their friends and family, what happened to them is they got ostracized by their family and run out of their community. That happens all the time. That doesn't happen in America. We just won't answer the door, right? We don't run you out of the town. Number two, we can realize that such persecution could happen here in the near future and be ready for it. It could, and I believe it is. As you watch things happen in our culture, as you watch what people say who are in leadership positions, there's going to be a day not so far from today where our freedoms that we enjoy will not be the same. And let me make a statement on that. It will be good for the church in those days. I'm not advocating that we that we move that way. I love the freedoms that we have, but it will purify the church like nothing ever has in America. Number three, we can ask ourselves how many compromises we have made in order to avoid any persecution at work or in secular society. See, we may not be facing the, the guillotine. We may not be facing the, um, the firing squad, but so many times we're unwilling to even voice the fact that we are a follower of Jesus because of what someone else may say or think. So when we read this, we're asking ourselves, how am I compromising? Number four, we can endure general trials that draw us away from the world and toward Christ. I think largely that is where most of us are going to be. Because when you're facing a trial, you understand God's in control. God knows what's going on. God knows my situation. And God's got it on a leash so that he's using it for my good and his glory. Right? What Paul says in Romans 8. That God's using this for his glory and for our good. And so we will press forward in those trials, press forward in those difficult doctor's visits, knowing that when the road gets difficult, when the life gets tough, what do we do? We hopefully will begin to look up and not continue to look at ourselves and those around us. Jesus here reminds the believers to not allow this difficult situation to discourage them. Instead, he encourages them to lean into Christ and to suffer well. So today, how is our suffering? The faithful disciple keeps his eyes on the prize. The faithful disciple does not fear, and the faithful disciple is willing to lay his or her life down for Jesus. How do you measure up in those categories? Today's message has been hard, a little difficult. It's been weighty, I understand. Um, but I believe it's a word that we so desperately need to hear in this easy Christianity America. And so where are you at this morning? 
Are you kind of bouncing along with Jesus when everything's good? And when things begin to go south, you bounce somewhere else? Or are you like these believers in Smyrna that even when hell is at your doorstep, hell's knocking on your door, unwaveringly saying to them, I'm with Jesus. You're like Pastor Han, continuing to share the gospel even when the assassins come to take you out. Obviously, that's a wide gap, so where are you at in all that this morning? Good news is, the gospel tells us there's forgiveness no matter where you're at. We need to have a hot heart for Jesus, but if you don't have that hot heart for Jesus, the reason Jesus gives us these letters, and he says, he who has an ear to hear, let the Spirit say what the, let the Spirit, he who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the church, let him hear, and then he talks about how when we hear and listen and heed it, we conquer The reason he says all of that is because it doesn't matter where you're at on the spectrum. Forgiveness is available, and it's free. So this morning, where's your heart? Where's your life? Wherever it's at, bring it to Jesus. He'll make it better. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for the faithfulness of these believers in Smyrna. God, we thank you for their witness, their testimony. We thank you for the fact that they continued to follow you no matter what. God, they listened to the words that you gave them through John. God, I believe it's a clear testimony that that faithfulness continued to to press on because Polycarp, even when faced with being burned at a stake, did so without hesitation, without reservation. And so for us today, I I know just personally, I know how complacent, how easy it is to fall into apathy. Just going through religious motions. Caught up in our own world. And really just aloof when it comes to spiritual things. Lord, I pray that there's a, a new sense of seriousness about our faith. That doesn't mean it's crusty. It doesn't mean it's seriousness about your faith. I pray that would be the case for us. Seriousness that leads us to pray more. Seriousness that leads us to give more. Seriousness that leads us to serve more. The seriousness that leads us to to share our faith more. Seriousness that that leads us and compel us together, together in church more because we need encouragement from one another.